So um, we do this thing at the moment in the church um, that I guess we call collaborative preaching. We work on planning series together as a team of preachers and we, we divide it up and we help each other with preparation. I don't know if you've figured this out yet. I, I've certainly noticed this. In this particular series, Isaiah 1 to 6, the way we've divided up the passages and assigned them to different preachers, I've ended up with all the judgment bits. Um, So Derek, a few weeks ago, he got to preach about nations beating their swords into plowshares. Um, Byrne has told us how God will be exalted. He, He gets a passage shortly about the glory of God filling the temple. Uh, Next week, Taeyong's going to tell us about the branch of the Lord, beautiful and glorious. And then Kamal gets to preach on a passage where God sings a song to the one he loves. I get to preach about God covering people's bald heads with weeping sores. Uh, I get to proclaim the message that instead of fragrance, there is going to be a stench. That's not just Katoomba Men's Convention. Uh, Sorry. It used to be in February when it was really hot and sweaty. Uh, I I get to preach about chaos in the leadership. And guess what? In a couple of weeks' time, I get to do it all over again in Chapter 5. Woe after woe, people dying of hunger and dead bodies piling up in the street. I don't know if I was distracted or uh, maybe there's some kind of conspiracy going on when we did the planning but I've got the rough end of the stick here. Uh, These passages are pretty confronting. And this this passage in particular, chapter 3, and that first verse of chapter 4, is very confronting. There is no sweetness in this passage. There's nothing there really to stir your soul with hope and joy. No butterflies, no light. It's just darkness and darkness and more darkness. Unless... I think there's one exception, one unless there. That is, unless you're someone who's actually living under the rule of tyrants, unless you're someone who really is being crushed by oppressors. Like uh, if you're a young Zulu kid growing up in South Africa at the height of apartheid. Or if you're an academic working in Cambodia when Pol Pot comes to power in the 1970s. If you're someone who's endured police beatings, if you've been dragged out of your home while other people ransacked it in the middle of the night, if you were shipped off to a forced labour camp where your friends and family died of malnutrition, and then a, a prophet like Isaiah comes along and speaks this message into those situations, well, then it is good news. That, that's probably the only time that this is a message of hope. I'm preaching to that congregation, then that's how I preach it, a message of liberation, of a new future ahead. Because Isaiah is saying that like a revolutionary, God is going to overthrow the oppressors. He's saying the bad guys will not get away with anything anymore. They will all be punished. And so if you're one of the poor and the vulnerable living in Isaiah's Jerusalem, when he preaches this message initially, you might actually be cheering. But not us. Not us, because that's not who we are. No one is grinding our faces into the ground. 
we want to line ourselves up with people in Isaiah's day, we are much more like the prosperous, self-assured residents of Jerusalem, the ones who are on the receiving end of this message. And because we are more like them than the poor and the oppressed, I think the way in which we need to hear this message is to feel the full force of what Isaiah is saying. We need to let this message about God's judgment against Jerusalem remind us of the frightening reality of how God says he's going to deal with all kinds of sin and rebellion. Now my guess is that that is not what you wanted to hear about when you came to church today. But that is God's message to us in this part of his word. Unexpected, but I guess as we look at Isaiah, we're coming to expect the unexpected from God. Certainly unwelcome and unwanted in our society. But it's a message we need to listen to. So I want to invite you to listen and let God's word address our hearts for the next few minutes. Now, to do that, we're going to need to understand what is going on in this chapter. So let me do a quick historical recap. Uh, we are, with Isaiah, we're back in the 8th century before Christ. So around about 720 years before Jesus. A couple of hundred years earlier than that, the Israelite nation had split into two different kingdoms. So there are the ten tribes up to the north, uh, based around uh, Samaria, that's the nation of Israel. And then to the south, around Jerusalem, we've got the nation, the kingdom of Judah. Isaiah's ministry is to the people down south. The other thing to remember as we come to this passage is remember that these are people who are coming off a long, sustained period of political stability and economic good times. In fact, that's another way in which they're a lot like us, isn't it? You know, we have our ups and downs, but really you think about the history of Australia. It's a long period, an extended period of political stability and economic growth. And here they are, in a very similar situation, but the key thing that Isaiah wants us to see is that the, the hearts of the people, the hearts of these people are far away from God. They are still a religious people, absolutely they're religious, but instead of God, we see this again and again in Isaiah, they have pinned their hopes on themselves. So things have been so good for them that they're trusting in their own cleverness, they're trusting in their own wealth, their military alliances, the political know-how of their leaders. They're thinking these are the things that have kept us going for years, they're going to keep us going into the future. And actually we're not that different either, are we? We look at what's happened in the past and we assume that that is always going to be the way it is for the future. What are the things that you tend to count on for your safety, your security? Is it owning a house? Or your insurance to make sure you're looked after if things go wrong? Your good health that you work hard towards? Or your savings? You've got targets, you're working towards those targets, that's going to set you up. Or maybe it is just the fact that this is a stable democracy We've got um, some kind of economic safety net that you can always count on here in Australia. Is, is that the sort of thing that you count on? We're not that different 
in many ways. All the things that the people of Judah are trusting in, the stuff that they're counting on to look after them, in Isaiah chapter 3, God says he is going to take it away from them. He's going to take it all away. And so let's have a look at this chapter together. You can see that, that he's going to take it away. It starts in verse 1. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, using the personal name for God there, is about to take away from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. They're going to lose their food, they're going to lose their water. It goes on to say the heroes and warriors and all the leaders and wise men they've been counting on to keep them safe will be gone. In fact, they're going to lose their city. They are going to lose all their wealth. So verse 6, Jerusalem is described as being a heap of ruins. And in verses 18 to 23, all the treasures and the jewellery they're so proud of, it's all going to be taken away. Instead of order, Isaiah describes chaos. So the people will be so desperate for some sort of leadership that even if they spot someone who's picked up a kind of tatty old tweed jacket and they're, they're wearing that, that, that will be enough for that person to be nominated to be president. That's how crazy the picture is in verses 6 and 7. It's the kind of thing that we would call a post-apocalyptic nightmare. So Isaiah could have been writing the script for the Mad Max movies. This is very similar stuff going on. The crazies have taken over in this chapter. Uh, the violent and corrupt have risen to the top. Chaos rules. And all of the prosperity and stability that they had counted on for so long is all gone. Everything's gone. See, through Isaiah, God is saying to the people of Judah, you reckon you're safe, do you? You reckon you're untouchable, that everything is going to be okay, that nothing will happen to you. Well, just you wait. You can't defy me forever. There is an army coming. I'm sending an army to you and they will annihilate you. They will destroy everything you've hoped in. All of your dreams, all of your security, all of your glory is going to be smashed and shattered and taken away. And so you get to verse 25. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn, destitute. So this once great city of Jerusalem is described as destitute, sitting on the ground. Like those road safety campaigns where they show the car wrapped around the telegraph pole and the the injuries of the passenger or the, the cigarette packet with the high-definition photo of mouth and tongue cancer. Isaiah is shocking the people with a picture of the full-blown horror of what is going to happen to them if they keep heading down the path of pride and self-reliance. Now, that's kind of instructive. Think about it for a second. Why do... Uh, the government and other authorities use these graphic, shocking ads uh, in their road safety campaigns and anti-smoking promotions. Why do they do that? Well, 
it's pretty obvious, it's because most people think it's never going to happen to them. It won't happen to me. And it's the same thing with Judah. They don't seem to be worried in the slightest. Uh, a friend of mine, a guy I know, has a brother who is a pilot for an airline. And one day, Justin asked him, apart from mechanical failure, what's the biggest cause of plane crashes? You know what his brother's one-word answer was to that question? Pride. Apart from mechanical failure, pride causes more plane crashes than anything else. That's interesting because we do all kinds of checks to make sure planes are safe to fly. But pride's invisible. You know, the the engineers can't pick that up in a pre-flight inspection. The guys x-raying your baggage won't ever see pride packed away in in your handbag or in your luggage. But pride can enter a plane and cause complete and utter devastation. And you know, there are, there are actually cases of black box recordings that have been recovered from crashed planes where you can hear literally almost the pride of the pilot before the plane crashes. So what you hear is the electronic computerised warning, the, the siren in the voice that's going, boop, boop, pull up pull up, the next thing that comes over on the recording is the sound of the pilot cursing the computer, telling it to shut up and stop annoying him and distracting him. And you know what the next sound is on the recording, don't you? The next sound is the sound of the plane crashing. Isaiah chapter 3 is like that navigational warning system. But the leaders of Jerusalem didn't pay attention. We know from history that this kind of post-apocalyptic nightmare Isaiah is talking about actually happened. It, It actually happened. Instead of them paying attention to the warnings, they just kept trusting their own wisdom, they kept trusting their own ability and their alliances and their wealth and their power and as a result they paid the price. So around about 100 years after Isaiah, the Babylonian army smashed Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed. Um, Most of the city kind of burned and left in ruins. The leaders of Jerusalem were either deported or killed. In fact, the king at the time when the, the Babylonians breached the walls, he ran off and tried to escape with his family and they captured him and his sons and they murdered his sons in front of him and then they poked out his eyes so that the last thing he ever saw was his children being killed. It is that nightmare scene Isaiah's painting. All of the treasures of the city, all their wealth, including their necklaces and their tiaras and earrings and bracelets and all the things they wore so proudly and all the things they gloried in, It was all captured and taken away. But here's the important thing. In the context of the whole of the Bible, what happened to Jerusalem, that is only a a tiny little window on the devastating ultimate judgment that God says will come against everyone who thinks they know better than him, who doesn't listen to God, or who wants to rule themselves.
If you go to the very last words of the very last chapter of Isaiah, so chapter 66, the, the book ends, having spoken a message of hope, it just ends with this warning of this terrifying judgment that will come against those who rebel against God. And in the New Testament, Jesus picks up that language. He uses those words. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this. He says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with just one eye than it is to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. And here's where he uses the language from Isaiah 66. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus took hell pretty seriously. In fact, more than anyone else in the Bible, you find warnings about judgment on the lips of Jesus Christ. And he says that what Isaiah was talking about, that is there to warn us, to alert us to the danger that we are in if we live with God out on the edge, instead of having him right at the very centre directing everything. Hell and judgment. They're not things most people are comfortable to think about or talk about. And I think the church often gets shy talking about them because we're told it's terrible to talk about that stuff. Now, I reckon part of the reason for this is because as a society over the last 200 years, we have more and more cut ourselves off from any sense of the, the supernatural or, or the transcendent. We believe in a world that we can measure and touch and see and do an experiment on in the laboratory, just the material existence. But part of the result of that is it means we've cut ourselves off from any overarching sense of meaning in life, any big picture sense of belonging to anything bigger. What that means is we have to create our own meaning, our own sense of purpose in our society. And in fact, that's what our society tells us to do. You know, it's, it's in the songs, it's in the TV shows we watch, it's in, in the Disney movies our kids watch. It's all about discovering who you are from the inside and creating your own meaning. So people say things like, well, my sense of myself, it doesn't come to me from outside, it comes from within, from who I say I am. I get to decide who I'm going to be in this world. And because I get to decide who I'm going to be and I get to decide how I find meaning, at the first whiff of judgment at the first hint of criticism from someone else, I immediately get defensive. I want to stand up and fight back and go, whoa, whoa, it's not up to you. I get to decide these things. How dare you say that I'm a sinner? How dare you say that what I think about things is no good? And that's the way things work out in our community. Because of this expressive individualism that runs through everything, Judgment is seen as something that attacks our sense of who we are, our self-worth, our sense of identity. But I think the Bible talks about another way in which to see this judgment. What if I told you that this horrendous news of judgment could actually be the very best news possible? 
Because in this news of judgment, in, in the context of the whole of the Bible, comes hope for a, a security and an identity that can never get taken away from you. What am I talking about? Well, of course, I'm, I'm talking about the cross, the death of Jesus Christ on a Roman executioner's cross nearly 2,000 years ago. See, in the storyline of the Bible, God's judgment is focused in this particular moment in a very special way. At, at the cross, we see how serious our sin really is. We see that the judgment and hell we deserve was so shocking and so serious that it took no one less than the Son of God himself to redeem us from it. Jesus experienced the full force of God's fury against sin when he died in our place. And that's the other thing that the cross teaches us about then, that he did that, he died in our place so that we would never have to face that fury ourselves. What does that teach us? It shows us that we are loved with an eternal, unbreakable love. Jesus was willing to go through that for us before we ever had any hope of doing anything to deserve it. He died for sinners. That's how much he loves us. And when you run into his arms, that's where you find security. When, when you run into his arms, that's where you can find your true identity. Not in something that you've created and come up with for yourself, but in the immensity of his all-encompassing love. A love that can never be taken away. You know, in, in Romans chapter 8, it tells us, uh, Paul asked the question, you know, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? You know, God didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Therefore, there's nothing in all of creation that could ever separate us from the love of God. There's nothing in all of creation that could ever remove our identity as people who are loved by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me urge you, if you've never run to Jesus' arms, do that. Don't delay that. Run to him today. Please don't be like the people of Isaiah's time who thought that they would be okay. Don't be like the smoker who says, well, you know, I'm not going to get cancer. My uncle smoked two packs a day until he was 86. I'm going to be fine. Don't be like the pilot flying his plane, screaming at the computer voice, saying, shut up, computer, I know exactly what I'm doing. Don't ignore God's warning signs. Turn to him, run into his arms, run to him to find shelter, rescue and identity. I think this chapter of Isaiah, chapter 3, is kind of like, let me go back to an aeroplane, it's kind of like being on a plane where you've got parachutes under the seat. Now, I know there aren't planes like that, but just imagine that's what she's doing with the safety instruction. She's telling you about the parachute under your seat and you're flying along and there's an announcement comes over the intercom. The engines are failing. The plane is going down. There is no time to land, nowhere to land. Either you put on your parachute 
and escape or you go down with the plane. And so the, the cabin crew are rushing up and down the aisle, helping people put on their parachutes to get ready to evacuate. Some of the other passengers who've already got their parachutes on then are trying to make sure that the people sitting near them are also ready. But some of the passengers on the plane couldn't care less. They want to finish watching their movie. They're enjoying the view out the window. This is spectacular. Look at how fast the ground is coming up towards us. They're saying, folks, calm down. The captain knows what he's doing. He'll fix it. It'll be okay. We don't have to worry. Just trust the guy who's in charge. Actually, the guy in charge has said, put your parachute on. Each of us needs to answer this question. Which passenger am I? Which passenger are you? Isaiah chapter 3 is a description of of the wreckage when the plane goes down. It's here to make sure we know how serious that is and to make us ask, which passenger are you? Which passenger am I? Have you believed the pilot and put on your parachute? Put your trust in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and and are you helping others to do the same if you've already done that? Which passenger are you? And having worked all that out, what are you going to do as a consequence? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we want to thank you that you care about us enough to give us clear warnings of the danger of living with you as an accessory rather than wholly trusting in you as our sovereign King and Lord. Father, we thank you that you care about us enough not to just leave us with that danger, but to send your Son to save us. Father, I pray that this afternoon, tonight, if there's anyone who's not yet run into the arms of Jesus, that they would do that. That they would put their trust in him and what he's done for them. And for those of us who already have, not only make us thankful, but help us to help others run to Jesus also. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.